That's the whole point. Don't ignore this example. Don't reject the point that has been given to us in the Bible. Do you look like someone who believes the Bible is true? Like, does your life actually show that you think that this book is valid? Welcome to the Reach College Podcast with your speaker, Pastor Taylor Gatt. All right, so many of you probably know that I like board games. The more complicated, the better. I don't really like board games that take a lot of imagination, like not really into Dungeons and Dragons. But if, it, if I don't have to imagine anything, the more complicated, the better. I want it to be like just crazy amount of rules. That's what I like. Well... We were playing board games at the Reach Retreat this year, the, the fall one, and uh, we, we, we sat down to play a new game I hadn't played before that the Bufords owned, and uh, I have like kind of like a, a way that you play competitively with people that you still want to talk to and love afterwards, which is that you can, you can disadvantage anyone while you're playing a board game as long as it benefits you. Right, so we've all played with that person who will just cut your throat in a board game, and it doesn't help them at all. They just want to take you down, right? And that, uh, especially for those of you who ever hope to be married, is a bad idea. Um, it doesn't help you at home. So we've learned that you have to you have to disadvantage people only when it actually does benefit you, only when it actually makes you, um, you know, able to win the game. We were playing a game at the fall retreat, and my sister-in-law was playing. My sister-in-law apparently does not share that philosophy because she, within like the first like 10 minutes of the game we were playing, she took a swipe at me and like disadvantaged me in a pretty major way. And I remember just thinking, okay, it's early enough that now I can not care about this game at all. And my entire goal is going to be to ruin her chance to win. <laughs> So we start playing that game, and I literally did nothing else. I I made every move I made was to make sure that she could not win the game. That's all I did the whole time. Now you can, you know, view that however you want. Um, as my sister-in-law, so I think I, you know, had the leeway to do it or whatever. But but the point is, I I was not going to win the game at that point. Like there was no way I was going to win the game with that strategy because I was kind of missing the point. I literally wasn't making plays that helped me score I was making plays that made sure she didn't score right so I was not going to win the game there was no way that I could do it because I wasn't following the instructions I wasn't understanding or trying to understand how the game was designed to work at that point I was playing my own game so I missed the point and then because of that I I couldn't win and I think that we miss the point when it comes to life all the time I think that the instructions have been given to us, the understanding of what the meaning of life is, if you've ever had that question asked you on elementary school playgrounds, I think that the meaning of life and the purpose has been given to us. It's clear, it's been shown, and it works. People who do it, they understand how fulfilled they are, how great life can be because of it. And so when we do that, we can you know, 
for lack of a better term or fitting with the analogy, we can win the game of life, right? We can at least make it through life in a way that fulfills us, right? But when we miss the point, even if we achieve what we're trying to achieve, we can't win. See, I kept my system off from winning, but I didn't win. See, you can make all the money in the world and still lose. You can get the degree. You can get the job, the dream job. You can live in the big house. You can get the nice car. You can do all the things. But if you don't understand the point of life, and if you don't base those things around the, that point, you're still going to lose. You're still going to end in the wrong place. So we're in a series on 1 Corinthians. And the series is called Church Fails. If you don't remember, or if you haven't been here, maybe you're just starting coming in January. The, the Church Fails series is essentially because Paul writes these two letters to the Corinthians. We have two in the Bible. We know there were two more. And these letters were essentially Paul addressing the church in Corinth and saying, here's all the stuff that you guys are misbehaving on. Here's how you shouldn't be acting. Here's how you, you need to change the way that you're going about living the Christian life. And so I call this series Church Fails, and we're seeing Paul just kind of one issue at a time say, don't do this, think about this, stop doing that. And he's addressing all these specific things, but he uses principles in Corinthians, and the reason that God left them to us in the Bible is so that we can understand how we should act, how we should behave, how we should follow in or not follow in the Corinthian example, but do what Paul is telling us to do. Now, the most recent chapters, as we got into chapter 9, Paul starts talking about meat sacrifice to idols. Now, this issue, uh, it's very tempting when you just read through Corinthians by yourself to think that this has nothing to do with us. Like you'll read the meat sacrifice to idols portion, you're like, I have literally never had that problem. Like, ever. Right? And that's fair. But you have to understand something. The meat sacrifice to idols portion is a great vehicle for how we figure out what's sin and what's not sin. Right? Because... We do this thing where we go to the Old Testament and we start reading through stuff like Leviticus and we get real confused real fast because we're like, am I, am I supposed to do all this? Am I not supposed to do all this? Because on the one hand, we're like, Ten Commandments, they're still valid. And then we're like, don't boil a goat in its mother's milk? What? Like, I don't understand what I'm, what I'm supposed to pay attention to and what I'm not supposed to pay attention to, right? And so this meat sacrifice to idols issue in Corinthians is Paul giving us a framework for how we can navigate our lives and avoid being uh, in sin. And the principle is actually going to be way more simple than you even think it should be. Now, when he talks about meat sacrifice to idols, this would have been an issue where the Jews, uh, either people who were still Jewish, still following the Jewish way, or people who had come out of Judaism into Christianity, they would have said, absolutely not. That's, that's out. You can't eat meat sacrificed to idols under any circumstance. And, and actually, they wouldn't even go into a Gentile's household. They wouldn't go into a non-Jewish person's household. They wouldn't share a meal with that person, right? And part of that, it was an easy way to avoid this issue, right? If I don't ever go over to a Gentile's house, I don't have to worry about where they got their meat, right? So you have the Jews who would say, absolutely not. And then you have new believers who are kind of start to posit this question, which is like, but... I'm like free in Christ now. Like, I don't understand the limits or the boundaries, right? So Paul is addressing both of these groups. And Paul, again, is going to use this as a vehicle for us to think through sin and how we should conduct ourselves. The last thing I want to point out to you is just before this point in chapter 10 that we're going to be today, Paul says, 
uh, essentially that what's not at stake is that you're actually worshiping a real God. Okay, Paul, Paul goes out of his way to say, okay, so this meat was sacrificed to an idol, basically a piece of wood that's been shaped into an animal. It's not like that's a real God, right? And that's important because he's going to say something that seems to contradict that in chapter 10. So I want, I want that to be fresh in your brains, that he's, he's gone out of his way to say, I'm not telling you that idols are anything. We know there's only one God. We know that those idols aren't real. They don't have real power. So what's, what's the big deal about sacrificing to them? And he's saying the big deal is not that you're worshiping this false god. It's that somebody who may have come out of that way of life might still be struggling in their conscience with it. And I don't want to shove it in their face if they still think eating that meat in their conscience is an act of worship. Right? That's what he's saying. So the Bible tells us the point of life and how to live for it. It is, it is the instructions for life. And if you reject these instructions, you can't play the game correctly. When I played that uh, board game, Anna Buford was sitting there, and I would make a move, and she would look at me and go, how does that help you? That doesn't help you. And I would look at her, and I would say, Anna, we're playing two different games right now. She was so nice, she didn't realize I had one mission. So I was missing the point. I was rejecting the point. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for their dead bodies were spread out in the wilderness. Now these things happen as an example for us so that we would not crave evil things as they indeed craved them. Okay, so the first thing is he mentions two elements. He talks about the cloud and the sea, right? Now, the cloud um, is, is really simple. When, anytime they refer to that in the Old Testament, what they're talking about is the pillar of fire and smoke that the Israelites followed in the wilderness. So the Israelites, they leave Egypt in the Exodus, and as they're walking through the wilderness, God gives them a physical manifestation, a big fancy uh, seminary word for you is a theophany, right? And a theophany is essentially God manifesting himself in a physical way, giving himself physical traits so that people could see or interact with him, right? And so in this period of Israelite history, as they were wandering through the wilderness, they had a pillar of fire and smoke that would travel through the wilderness and they would follow it. And it would settle on the tabernacle when it was when they were stationary, and it, God would rest there. And so they knew to stay put when the pillar of fire smoke stayed put, and they knew to move when it moved, right? That's how they figured out their way through the wilderness. There's an entire other sermon application there, but we're not going to talk about that today. The other one is the sea. Now, the sea is a reference to when the Red Sea split and the Israelites walked across on dry ground. And he says, when he talks about that, he, he references them being baptized into Moses. And it's a weird phrase, right? And here's what he's talking about. The people of Israel, in this entire chapter, there's actually a term in here that he says, consider Israel according to the flesh. Here's what he means. When he's referencing Israel and their deliverance or their past in this, in this portion of scripture, he's specifically talking about them physically, right? And so here's what he means. When he's saying being baptized into Moses, he's saying because they were following Moses, and they walked across the sea, 
They were delivered from their enemies, from death, from their danger, because of Moses' deliverance. Because Moses uh, was the, the vehicle God used to get them across the sea. But this saving was physical. That's all it was, right? And why is that important? Because one of the questions Paul's going to answer over and over again in the New Testament, he goes into an extended portion of this in Romans, is if God's people were Israel, then why did so many of them seem to die in not good relationship with God? Are they in heaven? Are they not in heaven? How does that, how does that work for those people that seem to rebel against him and had plagues and all this stuff happen in the Old Testament? And what he's saying here is he's saying that a bunch of these people were baptized into Moses. They followed Moses. They were delivered physically, but they weren't actual believers. They didn't put their faith in God's deliverance. They made it out of the physical situation they're in, but they rejected God as their actual savior for their spirits. See, the same thing, uh, This the, what, what we know is that Jesus, when we're baptized into Jesus, when we're in Jesus' name, Right, What we're doing is we're saying, Jesus is the vehicle for my deliverance, and not just my physical deliverance, maybe not even my physical deliverance, but my spirit. We know that when I'm baptized into the name of Jesus, not, not that baptism is what saved you, but that's the terminology we're using here as, as uh, basically representing who you follow. Right, And it, when we do that for Jesus, we understand that he is our spiritual savior, that he's saving our eternity, our souls. Right. And so he's making an analogy here to this deliverance or this following of Moses that led to a physical saving, but it didn't save their spirits. Right. He says right after this, he says they drank the same spiritual drink. They ate the same spiritual food. What is that? When we Jesus one time said, man does not live on bread alone. And what, what are we talking about there? This is spiritual food. When you study the word of God. When you hear sermons, when you listen to podcasts on the Bible, you are eating and consuming God's word and your spirit is being fed. That's the spiritual food and drink, right? That's why Jesus meets the, the, the Samaritan woman at the well and he says, if you drink the water I have, you'll never be thirsty again, right? He's talking about spiritual food and drink. And in this moment, what, what Paul is saying is that the Israelites in the wilderness, they were getting spiritual food and drink from Moses. They were being taught God's ways, right? Just like each one of you, every time you're in church, every time you read your Bible, you're eating and drinking that same spiritual food. Here's the key though. He's talking about them eating and drinking the spiritual food, but then he says, nonetheless, some of them God was not pleased with and they died apart from him. Why is that? Because being in church doesn't save you. Following Moses and even being delivered in this Red Sea climactic moment, it didn't make each individual person a believer. See, you can sit in church and I can feed you God's word. I can spoon feed it to you every Sunday and that doesn't save you. Because if you don't believe on this on an individual level, if you don't put your faith in the name of Jesus Christ, you're not baptized into his name. You're not being delivered. You're, you might you might gain some you know comfort. You might feel the feeding of your spirit because your spirit craves this, but you're not saved by it. And that's what he's talking about when he's talking about the the Israelites moving through the wilderness. They were following a, a source of food. And here's the cool part: he, our spiritual source of food is Christ. 
that's where it comes from, right? The Bible is all about Jesus, all about his gospel. That's what feeds us. And the cool part is he's saying that even though that's behind us and, and we're following that and being fed by it now, he's saying the Israelites were being fed by the exact same source. It just was ahead of them. It was the same place. See, there's this entire belief system out there that says, well, the Israelites got saved in a different way than we got saved. Not so. As a matter of fact, the entire book of Hebrews is refuting that argument. This one verse refutes that argument. The reality is their salvation was not meant to be Moses. Moses was something that showed them an example that they were saved spiritually by the rock that would follow Jesus Christ. And that example was designed that as they ate that spiritual food, they would believe God was their Savior. You're supposed to do the same thing. You just have the benefit of the mystery being revealed. They didn't know who Jesus was or what he would look like. They just knew that God would send a man, would send someone to save us, and we have the benefit of knowing who that is specifically. Verse 5, he says, uh, they, they ate, but they were not saved. They rejected it, and they died in the wilderness. And then he says in verse 6, this is a warning to us. See, this is a warning to you because if you think you can just sit in church or just own a Bible and be saved, he says, listen, the Israelites were told they were God's chosen people, and plenty of them weren't saved. Right? It doesn't work like that. It's not an automatic. You have to be believing on what this says. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Nor are we to commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor are we to put the Lord to the test as some of them did and were killed by the snakes. Nor grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the end of the ages have come. All right, so he's going to reference multiple moments here. A lot, some of these are in Exodus, a lot of these are in Numbers. And uh, each instance is essentially him, again, referencing this idea that just being an Israelite or being baptized into Moses wasn't <laughs> what saved them, right? It wasn't this physical deliverance. It was whether or not they believed. He says that they were idolaters. He's referring there to the golden calf incident at the beginning of Exodus, right? They've, they've escaped. They're at Mount Sinai. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, and a bunch of them take a bunch of their gold, and they make an idol to begin worshiping, right? And there's an implication there that they had essentially a, a sexual party around the worship of that golden calf. There's actually uh, a lot of evidence in the Bible that most of the time idol worship in, in ancient times, it revolved around either feasts or sex or both. And we wonder why idol worship was attractive. Like when you think you're like, well, what do they just bow down to a stump? It's like, that doesn't seem like a great religion, but it's because it was an excuse to get together and overeat and then have sex with temple prostitutes, right? And so suddenly didn't seem like such a bad deal. And this is why the, the ancient Israelites were always tempted by this. This is why they were always drawn in because other nations had temple prostitutes that would essentially try to convert you, try to bring you into that religion. And so what we're seeing here, it, it says it in verse 7, it's referring to the golden calf incident, and there's an implication there of more immorality. And then in verse 8, it says it uh, straight out, says not committing sexual immorality. And that reference is actually to the moment where there is a rebellion in the people of Israel in the wilderness in Numbers, where they are intentionally 
bringing temple prostitutes from the Moabites into the camp, or the Midianites into the camp, and having sex as a way of actually protesting against God. See, I want to point something out to you. One of the, one of the things that we struggle with in our culture is always this idea of like, um, am I saved or am I not saved? Like, do I have assurance? And oftentimes the reason we doubt our assurance, the reason we have a tr trouble with it is because we have sin in our lives. We're like, well, how can I have sin in my life? I'm supposed to be a Christian. It's like, okay, first of all, that's not it, right? You're going to have sin in your life. God has not finished making you perfect. You're going to always need work until the day that it's all said and done, right? But but let's back up. This is not talking about them just going, well, I just, I don't know. We shouldn't have been sitting on that couch alone late at night. It's not an accident. We're talking about them rebelling in sexual immorality, them bringing temple prostitutes into the camp as close as they could get to the entrance of the tent of meeting and conducting spiritual and worshipful acts of sex. That's a rebellion. That's defiance. That's rejection. All right, that's a whole new level. Do you want to know if you're saved or not? Let me ask you this. When you find a sin in your life, you feel bad about it? Do you want to repent of it? Do you want to give it up to God? Or do you go, well, that's not bad. I, that's, not, that's not sin. I know what the Bible says, but that's not a problem. I, can, I deserve this. See, that's when you should be worried, when you're defiant in your sin. But if you find sin in your life and it wrecks you because you're living in opposition to God, that's actually the sign that you do have the Holy Spirit. That's actually the sign of a believer. He moves on. He says, don't test God. And I want to stop on this point for a second because this, is, this has caused so much anxiety in our generation, this idea of testing God. And I want you to understand what testing God does and doesn't mean. Okay, There's actually a couple places in the Bible where God tells us to test him. And, and we have this whole moment in Judges where Gideon, uh, he does this test where he's like, he puts the fleece out and he's like, God, if you, know, if you want me to do this, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. And then the next day he's like, okay, but... Let, just so I'm sure today, make the ground wet and the fleece dry, right? And and we get this, we look at that and we're like, oh, he's testing God. He's testing God. It's a big deal, right? Okay, let's understand clearly what's happening here. Testing God does not mean discerning God's will. It does not mean asking God for things. It doesn't mean asking God to be there for you or talk to you or really anything that you need to do to grow in the Lord. Testing God means backing God into a corner. All right, here's an example of this. Uh, it's the person who doesn't have enough money right now to make ends meet and, and yet and still buys a car and then goes, well, God will provide. God will, God will provide because I had to get a car, so God will. No, listen, that's not it. That is you backing God in a corner and, and expecting God to show up on your terms, on your conditions, on what you decided to do, right? That's not, that is testing God. And when we talk about testing God, it's this idea of seeing if God will act, right? It, it can also be the rebellion that says, well, God's, God's not really going to do anything about this. God doesn't care if I actually just live in this sin. That's testing God. That will always result in negative things for you. So he says they tested God and they got killed by the snakes. There's this moment in Numbers where they, they're getting bitten by snakes and God actually gives them away. He, he has Moses set up a bronze snake and he says, anybody who has the faith, who just believes enough to look on this snake, they'll be healed. But those, of, those out there who are rejecting God, they're not going to make it. They're not going to be saved from this 
this plague of snakes. They were testing God. He says in verse 10, those who grumble. Now, this one is a little bit weird. There's actually a ton of examples in this, but there's no examples that really specifically match up. Um, I think this is actually a reference to like the whole book of Numbers, because the whole time that they're in the wilderness in Numbers, they're just complaining. They're rebelling against Moses, they're rebelling against God, and they're constantly being uh, hit with plagues because of their attitudes, because they are, they're, they're rejecting God in, in this sense, in the wilderness. And so I think that's what that's a reference to. Um, and then he says in verse 11, this is an example to us. All of this is designed so that we can know how we should and shouldn't behave, how we, sh- how we can know that whether or not we're actually in Jesus, in his deliverance, whether or not we're rejecting him and living our own lives, right? He says, the point has been given to you. The instructions are here. I've told some of you this before. Uh, Some of you have struggled with trusting God, trusting that God will come through. And I said, okay, first of all, if we really analyze it, if we really get down to the details, I can show you in your own life how God has been faithful to you how you can trust him from your own example. But let's pretend for a second that 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 doesn't exist. You have nothing in your own life to point to God's uh, goodness or God's uh, willingness to love you or faithfulness to, to keep you, right? You have a whole book of examples of him doing it perfectly. Literally, this entire book is filled with God taking care of his children, watching over them, protecting them, right? And when you read these stories, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go, Oh, God doesn't change. God is perfect in his nature. He's perfect in in who he is. If I follow him, he'll watch out for me the exact same way he watched out for his children in this whole book. You don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to say, well, I guess tomorrow I'll see if God comes through and then I'll start letting him build his credibility with me. You can actually back up and say, well, how did how's God shown me he's credible and trustworthy a hundred times over? Instance after instance after instance, you know, and and then beyond that, we could get even deeper into that conversation because you could talk about people like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego who said. I know that God can get us out of this. And even if he doesn't, we're still going to follow him. And what were they understanding even more? They're understanding what Paul says over and over again in the New Testament, which is quit focusing on the here and now. Quit looking at what's right in front of your face. See, the deliverance of the Israelites was physical, but it was designed to show them a spiritual truth that they could depend on. And Paul is saying, believe that God is going to save you eternally and spiritually, and then you won't even have to worry about the physical things as much. They won't phase you. They won't bother you because you realize they're not the point. I know God can get me out of whatever jam, whatever issue he wants to my whole life. But even if he doesn't, I know he's going to save me. I know that I'm I'm essentially invincible because no matter what you do to my body, you can't destroy my soul. That's why the Bible says, don't fear men who can only attack your body. Fear God who has the power over your soul. That's the whole point. Don't ignore this example. Don't reject the point that has been given to us in the Bible. Do you look like someone who believes the Bible is true? Like, does your life actually show that you think that this book is valid? 
See, going back to that board game, Anna didn't really think that I looked like someone who was playing that game, right? Because if I looked like someone who was playing that game, I would have made different moves. I would have done things that made it more likely that I was going to win or at least score. See, she she had trouble because she didn't realize I wasn't playing the game, and she knew from the way I was acting that I didn't seem to be playing the game. See, here's the reality. You, your, your actions, they don't save you. What you do doesn't – now, there's good news in that, right? Because your sins also don't condemn you, right? Because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The point is not what you're doing in and of itself. The point is that what you're doing is representing who you are inside. And if you're living in sin and rejecting God, that tells me something about what's going on inside. But if you're living the life of someone who believes the Bible is true, you will look a certain way. Look at verse 12. Therefore, let the one who thinks he stands watch out that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. And God is faithful, so he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape, also that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Okay. So, verse 13 may be one of the most, like, abused verses in the whole Bible. Okay, so we're going we're gonna to dissect this a little bit. The first thing he says in verse 12 is he says this reference to one who thinks he stands, that he will not fall. I want you to understand what he's saying there. He's talking about people who think they're a Christian, and he's talking about falling away from God for eternity. Right, And the point of that is he's saying, listen, if you think you're a Christian, then in order that you don't find out in the last moment when it's too late that you're not, take care. Look at your life. We're supposed to examine our lives with fear and trembling. Right Now, I use this fear language. I want you to understand what it is. It's not that I'm supposed to be terrified of God, like cowering in a corner like God's going to hit me, like I, I'm afraid of him. The fear of the Lord is this idea. I am terrified to not be on his team. I am terrified to be separated from him. I am afraid of what happens when I reject him. That's what the fear of the Lord is. And so what, what we're saying in verse 12 is you should be someone who says, I'm, I'm a Christian, but I examine that. I want to make sure that's true. I've met people. I have, I have met people that have come into this room, that have sat in these chairs, who will tell me flat out they are a Christian. And absolutely nothing in their life shows it. Not only that, they can't explain what that means. They have no concept of it. And, and I will beg these people to understand what being a Christian truly is, only to have them go, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I wear this Jesus cross, and I am good to go. And it's like, I don't know what to tell that person. That person thinks they stand, and if they don't figure it out soon, they're going to fall. And that, that terrifies me. Then he says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can stand. And that's what we like to stop it. And we're like, right there, God's only going to let me face things that I have the power to overcome. It's like, keep reading, all right? See, because the next thing that happens is it says, it says how we can stand it. Because he provides the way out. It's because he gives us the way of escape. It's because he is, listen, how do you always have the power to manage your temptation? Because some of you, 
you're thinking of the sins that you committed just in the last like 48 hours, and you're like, how am I supposed to overcome that? How am I supposed to deal with that? Here's the thing. I call it white knuckling, right? When you grab the steering wheel so hard that your, your knuckles turn white, this is what we do about temptation. We're just like, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. I just don't want to do it. I don't want to do it, right? That's not the power that this is talking about. That would be your own power overcoming. The power you have is to say in every moment of temptation, Lord, give me a way out. Lord, show me, orient me on the escape. See, if you go to God in the moment, listen, I'm, I'm going to embarrass somebody in here. Justin, where are you at? Justin, listen, this man, <laughs> this man right here has figured out some of this temptation battle because this guy's, this guy's response to the enemy hitting him with temptation is, you know what this guy, you know what the enemy doesn't want me to do right now? He doesn't want me to pray, so that's what I'm going to do. Listen, you want to fight temptation, make your response to temptation prayer. Right? That is when the enemy will be like, every time we tempt him, he prays. I don't like that. I don't want to cause that. Right? That's that's the whole point. And and what what we're doing in that moment is we're saying, I don't, I don't have the power inherently, but I have access to the power. I have access to a way of escape. And see, what does it say in the very next verse? That's our job in this. Flee. It's like, okay, yeah, pray and then flee. Here's the thing we do. This, this just blows my mind. And I'm going to use the same analogy because it's, it's the one that's so apparent. But then I want you guys to understand that you're all doing this. Like all of us. All of us are doing this, right? Okay? If you're an alcoholic and you struggle with alcoholism and you cannot not have a drink, you don't go hang out in bars. You don't go to the bar and just be like, I'll just, I'll, I'll do it this time. I won't. Won't make that mistake. Like that's not how it works. But we do this with all of our sin. We're like, well, I have I I struggle with, you know, looking at bad things online, but Instagram, which is just littered with bad stuff, I'm just gonna that that's fine. Like what that is going and hanging out in the bar. I don't care if you're sitting in the booth the furthest away from the counter, you're gonna find a way to do it. You're gonna find a way to mess this up. And this is with all of our sins. We keep we we say, How close can I be to the line and not mess up because I've been given the power to overcome it. It won't overwhelm me. No, we're told you have a way of escape, which is that way. Run as far as you can. Get away from it. Create limitations, right? Freedom in Christ is living within the limits that keep me from doing the things that take me away from Christ. It's saying, hey, I have freedom that I don't have to go to the bar. I don't have to be in the room with that sin. I don't have to. And and you guys hear me harp on this all the time, but this is why I tell you guys to delete your social media. I don't care if you're struggling with pornography or insecurity or depression or whatever it is that you're struggling with. I guarantee you that your social media is making it worse, like whatever version of it that that it is. OK, and that's why there's a group. There's at least I don't know. There's probably 10 people in this room who have deleted their social media and they will all tell you that it is a huge win. Right. And here's the, here's the crazy part. You get down the line from this and you realize like, oh, yeah, I did have an Instagram. It doesn't matter. It just goes away and you're like, ah, weird that that was like so important to me for so long. Why was I addicted to that? Right? But you have a way of escape. But the way of escape is not that you're going to get on your social media every day and be stronger than it. It's that you're going to flee from it. That is the whole point. Look at verse 15. I speak as to wise people. You then judge what I say. 
is the cup of blessing which will uh, which we bless uh, not a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is the bread which we break not a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. Look at the people of Israel. Are those who eat sacrifices not partners in the altar? Okay, this is basically a re-emphasis of what we've already talked about. What he's saying here is he's saying those who who believed on the altar, they participated in it, right? They they actually went and, and did the things, right? So in the same way, why do we take the Lord's Supper, right? What we're doing is an outward expression of who we follow, what we're partnered to, what we're connected to. But here's the thing. Somebody thinks that by taking the Lord's Supper, they're saved. They've got it. That, that's it. That's what they needed to do. But that's missing the point. That's the outward expression of an internal reality. But can you take an outward expression? Can you put on a disguise, put on a mask? Can you fake what you believe? Of course you can. So if you want to, sh- if you actually believe in the Lord's Supper, that's something internal to you that you're expressing outwardly. And he's saying, yeah, you've, you've partaken, you've participated just like the Israelites who partook in the sacrificial system. But did they actually believe on it or not? See, the sacrificial system was still a statement of faith on God. It was them saying we depend on him to save us, right? This is why the the author of Hebrews, he says, did the blood of bulls and rams ever save anybody? Nobody walked into the temple with their sacrifice and were like, this saves me. Now, I mean, they eventually got there, right? That was the problem. They were supposed to walk into the temple and go, oh, I need something to save. I need blood. This is a representation of what God will someday do perfectly, which is that he will sacrifice something perfectly to save me. It was meant to be a lesson the entire time, just like the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 19. What do I mean then? That food sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that, uh, I say that things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become partner with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? We are not stronger than he, are we? Okay. So the first thing we see is in in verse 19 is he says, he, he reaffirms what he's already said. He says, listen, I'm not telling you that idols are real. I'm not telling you that there's little gods out there that are like in opposition to our God. What he says here is that all false gods have the same backer. They have the same spiritual source that is an enemy to God. Now, this is an important reality because what he's not saying is demons are false gods or or false gods or demons. What he's saying is false gods are fake, but they're backed up by a real enemy. Right now, the reason that's important is because false gods is like an implication of like almost like pure life status with God. Like, well, is our God stronger? Right. You've got this moment on Mount Carmel with Baal and there's this competition between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And I've, I've always stressed this when I talk about this, this point. The point of that passage where they have this competition is not God stronger than Baal. It's God strong and Baal doesn't exist. That's the point. And so the false gods don't exist, but they do have an enemy backing them, promoting them, and teaching people to chase them. And he says, you can't intentionally serve evil and not care about the demons and also serve God. 
right? He's not saying if you, you know, you accidentally eat this meat sacrificed to idols, now you're in trouble because it has demons behind it. He's saying you can't be connected to demons intentionally on purpose, not care about that, and also be connected to God and be on God's team. And then he references, he says, uh, are we stronger than God? And this is a call way back, right? Because one of the things that Paul is really big on is this idea of the weakness of God. Okay, the weakness of God is this. The weakest thing God ever did was be killed. Jesus died. That, that moment was humiliating. We call it the humiliation of Christ. It was the shame of God to be killed. I mean, an all-powerful God was killed? Like, that's, that's the point Paul's making. He's like, that looks crazy. That looks weak. That looks shameful. And he says, the weakest moment for God that ever happened was stronger than anything you have. The weakest moment for God redeemed and saved all of humans and all of creation. And you can't even save yourself. You have nothing to offer to find salvation on your own. And yet this, this moment that we could look at as the humiliation of God, he chose to be humiliated in that way because it was so strong, it saved all of us. That's the point. Or, and be careful with my language, it offered salvation to all of us. Right? It redeemed us all to God so that we can be saved. That is the point. It was the moment that we were purchased. It's not because you take the Lord's Supper. It's because you depend on that work, it's you, that you depend on Christ. See, the point of life is that you are designed to glorify God. You are designed to worship Him and praise Him. And here's the thing. It benefits you to do that. right? I've talked about if you were running out of gas in your car and you pulled over on the side of the road and you were like, oh, I'm running out of gas. Quick, grab some mud, put it in there. It's like your car's not going to run because your car doesn't run on mud. And see, your whole life you've been filling yourself up with the stuff the world has to offer, which is essentially mud in your gas tank. And you wonder why you keep breaking down. The point is to be filled up on the thing you're actually designed to run on, on the spirit, on what you're designed to be fulfilled by and lifted up by. And when you're fulfilled and lifted up by that, you run, you function, things work well. That is the whole point. Look at verse 23. All things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted, but not all things build people up. No one is to seek his own advantage, but rather that of his neighbor. Okay. I'm going to stop right here for a second. First of all, we've seen this model before. This is apparently the Corinthian mantra that's going on. This is what's causing most of the problem because he's repeated this like six times. They have, they've accepted Christ. They're following Jesus. They've found freedom in Christ. And so now... They're using their newfound freedom in Christ to this unlimited liberty. And they're basically saying, well, all things are okay. All things are good. I'm in Christ. I'm free. I can do whatever I want. Right. And so Paul is, is he's like affirming and then undermining it at the same time. Cause he's saying, yes, you're free in Christ and you're also missing the point. Right. <laughs> and that's what he's, he's doing this over and over again. So he says, yes, all things are permitted, but not all things build people up. And I want you to understand something. This is the whole point of the Bible. See, there's this intrinsic relationship between loving God and loving others. That's, that's the whole Bible. Loving God and loving others. That's the whole thing. All right? 
and they have, they're interconnected completely. See, in order to love God, you have to love what he loves, which is others. And in order to love God or love others, you have to point them to God, right? They, they are always together. So anytime you see one, you also see the other. And in this moment, he's saying, sure, all things are permitted, but are you loving others? Because if you're not loving others, you don't love God. If you're not loving others, you've missed the point. This is the only thing that matters. Loving other people. Look at verse 25. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the sake of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to, to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for the sake of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of, of that one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now, by conscience, I do not mean your own, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered about that which I which I give thanks? Okay, so the first thing I want you to see here, we're going to we're going to just focus uh, on verse 25. Verse 25. Again, he says, eat anything that's sold in me, Mark, without asking questions for the sake of conscience. I really want to hone in on this verse real quick. This verse is the verse that destroys legalism. Okay, because you need to understand something. Quit looking for reasons to be offended. That is not the point of the gospel. The gospel is not seeking out. Listen, you sin every day whether you know it or not. You sin all the time. You do not need to invent more reasons to feel sinful, right? There's, there's plenty of them. If you're looking for them, you'll find them. Don't make more, okay? You don't have to wander around going like, well, I can't, can't mess up on accident. Can't mess. Listen, there's literally a verse in Psalms. I think it's 19.12. It says, who perceives his unintentional sins, cleanse me from my hidden faults. I pray that all the time because there is so much sin in my life that I don't even know about. I want God to cleanse me even from that sin. But that is not the same as being worried. I'm not in a panic state all the time because I've been saved from that sin. I'm free from that sin. So I don't walk around like, can't step over the line by accident. God's going to condemn me as soon as I do. That's not the point. Don't look for reasons to be offended. Listen, Part of the Christian life is actually maturing to the point where less and less things bother you as sinful, where you understand what actually is sin. What's sin? Not loving God and loving others. That's it, right? And he's saying, listen, you go to somebody's house and you eat this meat and you have no idea whether it's sacrificed to idols or not. You're not sinning. You're not doing something wrong, right? And so then he says, okay, but as soon as that person tells you as soon as they, this, this is the confusing part because he says it kind of like both ways. He's like, you can do, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Don't even ask the question. And then he says, but as soon as they tell you, as soon as you know, stop doing it. Right. And you're like, the, the way we read that is like, as soon as I know, now I'm sinning. That's actually not what he's saying. He's not saying that as soon as you know, you're sinning because you're doing the action. He's saying, as soon as you know, you're sinning because you're not loving them. Right. Because there's there's two versions of this. Right. What if you're at somebody's house and they're like, my friend's a Christian, so we're going to see what's up. And then they just, you know, we're doing the ancient Greek version of this because this would never happen today. But that person goes, goes, hey, just so you know, I got that uh, food from the meat market. It was in the sacrifice to idol stand. They're watching that person. They want to see. Right. And and what it is at that point is not that you you have to go. Oh, I chewed on the meat sacrifice to idols. I'm a sinner. That's not it. It's that you go, oh, well, then I can't eat this. And you're making a testimony. You're loving that person by saying, I don't want to partner with something that, that's against my God. See, that, at that point, that would be the sin, would be not loving them, 
right? Or let's say that they, it was totally innocent. They weren't trying to trip you up at all. They just said, yeah, I got a great deal at the, at the you know, because the, the meat sacrifice idols was cheaper. That was part of the benefit, right? And so they're going, well, well, I got a great deal on this meat. Come over and have it. And then you go, well, I can't, I can't come over and eat meat sacrifice idols. Why? Because it was a testimony. It was a way to love people and, and show yourself different. Listen, uh, Cameron Sears, he's, he worked for UPS during the, the off season. And Cameron has deleted off his phone any internet browser whatsoever. Like he has nothing, right? Which is great, right? And see what happens is apparently he told me that for what, whatever he was doing at UPS, every time he got on a truck, he had to watch a video. They gave him a QR code. He had to scan it. He had to, he had to watch a video. And he would every single time he would go, I can't watch it. I don't have any internet on my phone. And he'd say, they don't know what to do. They're like, because uh, they've never heard that. They've never heard of anybody not having the internet on their phone. Right. But here's the thing. Do you know what that resulted in? Some great conversations. He got to give a testimony because he's living so differently because he's living by conviction for what the Lord wants him to do, because he's fleeing his idols. That he got to testify to people about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing in his life. Are you living in any way that even makes somebody turn their head? That even makes somebody think you, you don't have the Internet. You don't have YouTube. You don't have social media. You don't do you don't drink. You don't do this, like whatever it is, in a way that just builds your testimony. So I'm not saying that I, I'll be the first one to tell you that not having a drink is not a sin. But my question to you is not whether or not it's a sin to have the drink. The question is, do you not do it because you might have a chance to share the gospel? See, that is the whole point. That's why this meat sacrifice to idols thing is the perfect vehicle for this discussion. He's saying, he's saying, if you know that you have a chance to share the gospel, that you have a chance to point somebody and orient them to God, and you don't, that is when you're sinning. That is when you're misstepping and making the mistake. That is the problem. He says, do this so that you can witness to people, because people are watching. People are paying attention to you in your life and how you, you live. You know, they talk about uh, pastors. Pastors who live one life in front of their congregation, in front of their people, and then go somewhere else and, and do something different. Uh, there's stories of, I heard a story of a pastor who went uh, on a business trip or something. I can't remember. He was out of town. That's the point. And he walked out of a strip club right into a news team that was doing a story on something else. Caught on camera. They saw that report in his hometown. He was fired before he got home. He should have been because he wasn't living according to who he claimed to be. Listen, we deal with this assurance thing over and over and over again, but it's, it's not that hard. It's not do you have any sin in your life? Of course you do. You have sin in your life you don't even know about. That's not the point. The question of assurance is do you care? Do you actually want to follow Jesus and want to share the gospel? Do you make any decisions based off what this book says, or is it just kind of like some neat bedtime stories? Because if that's all it is, it's not doing anything for you. I want you to understand the next three verses, last three verses of this chapter, they are the point of the whole Bible. This is all Christianity in three verses, literally everything you need to know. If you ever hear something that conflicts with these three verses, you are not talking about Christianity, even if you got it out of the Bible. Okay, That's what I need you to understand. So Look at verse 31. 
Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Do not offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Okay, the point of life is to glorify God. The meaning of life is to glorify God. There is nothing else. It is the only thing that fills you up. Listen, if you have your heart set on this dream job, but that dream job is not so you can glorify God, it's not going to fill you up. If you have your heart set on marrying the perfect spouse, which, by the way, not a real thing because we're all sinners, but if you have your heart set on marrying that perfect person that, that has no flaws, even if you think you found them, if that thing, if that marriage is not designed to help you glorify the Lord, it will not fill you up. It will not make you whole. It will not make you complete. Nothing that you do that is not subservient to glorifying God will benefit you, will make you complete. Now, it might give you fleeting moments of pleasure. I'm not saying that you won't feel good for a second, but you won't feel good eternally. And, and you won't even have to wait all of eternity to figure that out. It will set in a lot shorter than that. And you will realize this didn't do it. You know, I don't, I don't care. I think about Tom Brady, guys like Tom Brady, who they, they win just so many Super Bowls. But, you know, every time he ever won a Super Bowl, he had to start thinking about winning the next one. That's why he won so many. And, and, and you know, that's why he couldn't stay retired. That's why Jordan did the same thing. Right? It's because... It, it doesn't fulfill them permanently. When we're talking about some of the greatest athletes that have ever lived, they've achieved the top thing they can achieve in their lives. It's not good enough. They have to do it again and again and again and again. It doesn't do anything for you. Not only that, God deserves your glory. God deserves you. And by the way, let's, I don't want to use Christianese too much. Let's talk about what glorifying God is. It's pointing to him. How do you glorify God? In any way, shape, or form, you point to him. You glorify God in your actions when your actions are Christ-like. You glorify God in your worship because you are literally praising his name. You glorify God in anything you do that points people to who he is. That's what glorifying God is. That is the point of our lives. And he deserves it. And not only does he deserve it, you benefit. That's why God knows it's good for you to glorify him. That's why it's not even, people are like, isn't it kind of selfish? Well, first of all, it would be if he didn't deserve it. Right, But second of all, God knows that it's completely selfless of him to say, glorify me because it benefits you entirely. You're the one that's filled up and whole and complete and, and, and not distraught and in despair and anxiety and depression because you're living life for the point. You benefit. And in verse 32, he says, don't distract from the gospel. That's what that verse means. I want you to understand that is the metric for sin. Are you distracting from the gospel? Right now, that doesn't that doesn't mean that you can't sin when nobody's watching. Like you're home alone, you can still sin. Why? Because you're even distracting yourself from the gospel, right? But anything that distracts from the gospel, that is the problem. And then in verse 33 ends with the whole thing. He says, "I love others. I I want them to get saved. That is the whole point." That is what I'm trying to do. Listen, if I've received this gift of the gospel, I can't keep it to myself. I understand what I've got. I have to give it to other people. I have to proclaim it. Do you love God? Then love others. 
That's the whole point. Be about what God is about. God is about saving people. So why aren't you? You claim to be on his team. If you claim to be a partner with him, be about saving people, which incidentally glorifies him. It's all connected. That is what the Bible is about. If you think the Bible is a book of rules, listen, this is the perfect chapter to fight that mentality. This idea that this is just a list of do's and don'ts. Meanwhile, you get to you get to the middle of Corinthians and Paul's like, listen, like idols aren't real. That's not the point. He's like, just share the gospel. That is the metric. That's what you should measure this against. It's not about keeping the endless list of regulations. As a matter of fact, the reason the, the list of regulations are in there is to show you that you can't keep them. Right? That's why Paul is in the New Testament going, if you think keeping the law saves you and you violate one law, you're out. That's it. He's like, that's never been the point. That was never the goal of the law. The goal of the law was to show you how far from God you are, how much you need him. There is a point to life. It's loving God and loving others. You love God by loving what he loves, and you love others by pointing them to God. That is the be-all, end-all of the Christian religion. That's it. Anything else is is a mistake, a misstep. Go out, begin 2024 by reorienting your life around loving God and loving others. Around actually making your life look like you believe it's Hey guys, this is Philip Jackson, pastor of Young Adults at Evergreen Baptist Church. I want to invite you to come to Reach. We meet every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at Evergreen Church in South Tulsa, just east of Mingo on 111th Street. The mission of Reach Tulsa is to cultivate a young adult community that's defined by real transformation and a sincere pursuit of a godly life through training in biblical disciplines, personal development, and intentionally transitioning into independence as mature members of the body of Christ. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Reach Young Adult Ministry is a part of Evergreen Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org.